We are in our uh, sixth week, of the, or fifth week, in the seven churches of Revelation. And just so you know, we're only doing six of the seven. Just getting to get that out there now. So next week will be our last, our last one. And so these are challenging letters. These are, Jesus is writing these letters, um, and the Apostle John in the island of Patmos is recording this revelation that he's received from Jesus about the seven churches. And so there are letters of challenge and there are letters of hope. And so we are on um, another challenging message for us today. Last week, Thyatira was probably the most difficult, um, and this one is, is not far behind. So let's pray and jump right in. God, we'd ask today that we'd be willing to be challenged. Uh, I think we are often caught up in only encouraging one another, and sometimes we do need to be challenged. And I think that this passage reveals that in the right way to do that. And so God, would you open up our hearts to receive your word? Amen. So uh, one time when I was young, it wasn't just once, but it was many times, I was doing something that I was not supposed to do. I was climbing on top of this uh, swing set that we had at the house, but I wasn't just like climbing in a normal way, but I was actually on top of the swing set, you know, like I climbed up on top and I was goofing around and my parents had told me that I needed to stop doing that because people weren't watching, I could get hurt, you know, all of these things. Of course, I didn't listen and uh, I, I ended up falling, but I fell and I kind of grabbed at the last second this, this wood beam and I got this sliver in my finger. You guys know slivers are just a small thing, but they, they hurt, right? And as a eight or nine-year-old kid, I remember feeling inside that I, I can't tell my parents that I have the sliver because then they're going to ask what happened, right? But it really hurts and I don't know how to get the sliver out. And so I just kind of left it, <laughs> And over time, at first it was really annoying and it hurt really bad, but then your body kind of heals around it and it starts to become normal. It starts to become less painful. It starts to kind of heal, which is weird, but inside of your skin. And eventually, at one point in time before dinner, our family was very religious and we held hands before we prayed. And my dad grabbed my hand and he, and he saw the sliver and he says, you have a sliver. And I said, what are you talking about? You know, like, <laughs> and so the whole thing was revealed, right? He pointed out the problem I had. It revealed the, the, the disobedience. But also, after he pulled it out, it hurt, right? It hurt that I was confronted with this, that I had to deal with the fact that I lied, that I had to get the sliver removed, which is painful. But in the end... It healed. Ultimately, it actually felt better. It healed. I remember later on in life, I had been uh, being rebellious again. And my dad had caught me in some significant sin in my life. And he called me out. And it took courage to do that, to call me out. And in the midst of being called out, healing came. And forgiveness came, and reconciliation came in my life that I didn't think was possible in the midst of what I was doing. 
And so here we have a context of a church that Jesus literally has nothing good to say about. All the other churches, there's at least some encouragement. And then there's a rebuke, and then there's a promise. This one, there is no encouragement. So we have the context of Laodicea that I think we need to understand in order to understand why Jesus would have nothing good to say about them. Laodicea was a booming economy. It wasn't a huge town, but it was wealthy. I mean extremely wealthy for the time. They were right along significant trade routes. They had goods that came from all over the world. They were successful and they were well-ordered. They had uh, a leisure and pleasure and entertainment. You could see all sorts of theaters that they built. They, in their religion, they were syncretistic, meaning that they believed in a combination of local and regional gods. But there's three significant things that made them wealthy. Three things that I think are really important for us and will give us context to know what Jesus is saying to them in this letter. The first is that they were a banking sender. They were so good with money and finance and and, and the exchange of money that, that when a massive earthquake came in A.D. 60 that shook the whole region. I think you probably remember me talking about that earthquake a few weeks ago in, in another church that was written a letter that devastated their economy. Well, in this case, they were so wealthy that the city of Rome and the Roman Empire offered them help. Essentially saying, we will give you money to rebuild your city. And they said, now nah, we're good. We'll pay for it ourselves. So they rebuilt their entire city off the wealth of their own people, taking nothing from anyone else. They were also famous for black wool, which may not seem like a big deal, but black wool creates black clothing. And that was a very rare thing. Most people think that they were able to have sheep with black wool because of the the water and its minerals that caused them to grow black wool. Isn't that interesting? And so, as a sign of wealth and prosperity and fashion, the people of Laodicea would wear black. And they were one of the, so if you you saw someone wearing all black, you would know that they were from Laodicea, you would know that they were wealthy, you would know that they were in style, you would know that they were a significant people. The third thing that they were known for is this famous eye salve, which is kind of a a strange thing as well. But essentially, people would have, they, they were able to come up with this mixture that would heal people that were struggling with eyesight. And people would come from all over the world, and this ointment would be shipped all over the place in order for people to be healed. So you can imagine how valuable that was all around the Roman Empire. So they had black clothing, They had this eye ointment that cured eye diseases and they were a significant banking center. They had one problem and amidst all of their wealth. They had no fresh water supply. (laughs) Yeah, it is ew. So they had fresh water. I shouldn't say they didn't have anything. They had water, but the water was nasty. It was filled with all sorts of minerals that caused it to corrupt and corrode and that when you could hardly drink it, you'd want to spit it out. 
Some of you may, I think the city of Chicago water is good. I don't know anybody you, but because I grew up in a place where you drank well water. And this particularly my grandpa's house, he lived on this like little cottage uh, in the countryside. Let me just tell you, when you went to grandpa's house, you would not drink water. You would beg for juice, you'd beg for soda, you'd beg for anything but this well water because it was gross. And so what they had to do in order to solve this problem was that they had to build these massive aqueducts and pipes from the surrounding cities that had good water into their city. And so we're going to come back to how that was significant based on what Jesus says in this passage. Jesus starts off this word by saying something significant. We always want to hear the first verse because sometimes we skip by it. Like Jesus is just saying things about himself. Well, there are significant things and they're meaningful things and they're interesting things for the context that he's writing. So the first thing that he says in verse 14, he says this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness the ruler of God's creation. Most of us probably don't even know what amen means. We just say it at the end of our prayers. But what this would do is draw the people back to Isaiah 65. And in Isaiah 65, verses 15 through 17, it speaks about God being the amen. And it means the God of truth. Amen means truly or so let it be. And so it brings attention to the authority of Jesus, because he uses this in the Gospels as well. He says amen and amen oftentimes, 13 times in the Gospels. And it brings attention to his authority to speak for God and that he is the messenger of God. And he's emphasizing the truthfulness of this divine message for the church. He's trying to say to the church, listen to me, what I'm telling you today is the truth. You need to hear it. And I have all authority to make these statements because I am the amen, because I am the truthful one. And Jesus is this living witness of, of truth, embodied truth in his life. He gives us an example of this faithful testament to the world of the superiority of God's way. And he's saying, I'm going to tell you God's way today, Laodiceans. You are neither faithful nor true, and your witness is virtually non-existent, but let me tell you, mine is true. And then he goes on to say that he is the ruler of God's creation. This again goes back to Isaiah 65, which follows the, the truth with God saying, Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. And so God's truthfulness in the Old Testament was tied to his power and his creation of the world. Jesus was part of that creation, right? It says that uh, Jesus was uh, before all things and in him, uh, he, he created all things and in him all things hold together. For by him and for him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things are created by him and for him. And he holds all things together. So he's saying to these people, I am the one true God, I am the one that's going to tell you the truth. Please listen. And then he makes a statement in verse 15 that's, that's a strong rebuke. He says, I know your deeds, 
They are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. So what they would do, as I mentioned before, that they, they didn't have fresh water, good tasting water, so they had to ask the city of Colossae, which was 10 miles uh, to the east of them, and they received really cold water from the snow melting down the mountains. And it was fresh and cold and good. And so they would filter this through all the aqueducts all the way to Laodicea, but by the time it got there, guess what happened? It was hot, right? And it would cool that water down and it ended up just being lukewarm. And the same thing happened to a, in another region. So all this makes sense if you understand the context, right? The Hierapolis city was six miles north of them, another neighboring town, and they had hot springs. And they got all their water from these hot springs, and so they got to enjoy a hot cup of water. Now some of you would say that sounds gross, but that was a, that was a good thing. My mom used to drink warmed up microwaved hot water. I never understood it, but to some people that's, maybe they made tea, right? Maybe they made something out of it. But by the time it arrived to Laodicea, again, it wasn't hot anymore. It was lukewarm. And so for a long time, I think I actually understood this passage, and we've, we've misused it in preaching for a long time. Some people think Jesus is saying, I want you hot, meaning I want you on fire for God, or I want you cold, admitting that you want nothing to do with God. That's a better spot to be than being lukewarm where you're pretending. And I think the passage is actually saying either hot or cold is good. <laughs> Meaning like they're both, they're both good things. There's, nothing, there's not like a distinction of salvation here. It's just these are good and lukewarm tastes terrible. And so I'm going to spit you out. And you are lukewarm. He's essentially saying your spiritual condition is just so bland, is just so uh, inconsequential, is just so tasteless, it's just so boring that it's going to, I'm going to spit you out. Laodiceans should have been known for their uh, spiritual healing like the Hierapolis community or the refreshing life-giving ministry of Colossae that's the cold water. So Jesus is, is shaping and explaining the church's spiritual condition. So why was this church lukewarm? Why were they so far off? Verse 17 gives us this really clear picture. And it's interesting, isn't it? That the other churches were rebuked for idolatry and sexual immorality and denying the uniqueness of Jesus Christ in order to fit into society. What could this church have done to conjure up this type of response from Jesus? I think that some people have said, well, they were just apathetic. But I think it's bigger than that. If you read verse 17, it's, it's more significant than that. And it says this, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What happens when you are wealthy, not because of the wealth, but because of how the wealth, uh, you, you essentially be, become addicted to the wealth, is that you begin to have this experience where you don't really think you need God anymore. 
They had allowed their wealth to blind them into thinking that they are rich and they don't need a thing. I, I really do believe that this is a real thing. And it doesn't just happen in Laodicea. It happens to us. And some of you may say, well, I am not rich. <laughs> and you may be right. Some of you in this room may not be rich, may not have all those things. But I would just say there are many of us that are, by the world's standards. We do live in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. And if you have three meals a day and a place to, to sleep at night, you have it better than most people or a lot of people around the world. There is something to a spiritual vibrancy when you have to depend upon Jesus for everything. And I think what happens in our context is that wealth solves a lot of our problems. Does it not? We can just have an issue, we can just throw money at it, right? We can fix um, our problems of health a lot of times because of money. We can fix our problems for shelter with a lot of money. We can fix our problems of even <laughs> friendship by money and what money can buy in regards to relationships. And it infiltrates the American church and it consumes the American church. And, it, and, 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 and I believe that if Jesus were to write a message to the American church, this would be part of it at least. That you are lukewarm. Before I um, became a pastor and, and started Missio Day, I worked for a nonprofit and I had the opportunity to travel around the world um, working with different churches for a number of different reasons. I got to go to big churches and small churches. I got to go to churches that were made out of sticks uh, and mud. I got to meeting churches that had just a small tent that they put up in 100-degree heat. And people would come for miles in order to worship Jesus. I remember one spot we had to track miles on foot to find uh, randomly in a field a church built by sticks and mud that was probably you know, a, f a fourth of the size of this room. And all of a sudden, people just came, started coming out of different, like the trees. <laughs> and they all gathered, and there were like hundreds of people crammed in this church. And I just, I don't know every single one of them, but the passion, the desperation for God in their lives was tangible. And it's because they needed Jesus for everything. They needed Jesus for their daily bread. <laughs> they needed Jesus to help them with their crops. They needed Jesus to help them with their diseases because they didn't have the medical care. They needed Jesus to help them in every way imaginable. So their dependence upon God was significant. And I just think that we can be blinded to our need for God by wealth. So it's not surprising that Jesus says, you do not realize 
that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. Of course, they are not, by society standards, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So he's speaking about their spiritual nature, where they're at in their, in their spiritual life. You have boasted that you don't need God. They don't even know. They're so blind to see their spiritual need. I found uh, the pandemic terrible, <laughs> but also revealing in some ways. Because I think for many people that have a lot of money, the pandemic was shocking. Because it was really the first time that they couldn't solve their problems with money. This is kind of the same thing with sickness and disease. Sometimes you get sickness and disease and you can't solve it. But the pandemic was the first time where kind of like this impacts everybody. And the number of my friends that are extreme, that are pretty wealthy, it drove them crazy that they didn't have the freedom that they'd so desired and so long for, and they couldn't create it with money, that they literally had to depend upon God. And it revealed to them that money would not solve all of their problems and that it required in their life community and a communal effort for the greater good. I think wealth individualizes things and, and solves a lot of our problems, but certain things in our life reveal our need for God, regardless of how much money we have and individual freedom. So Jesus coaches this church. He says to them some interesting things. I love this. Verse 18, if you have your Bibles open. He counsels the Laodiceans the exact opposite way of what they already have. So he says this. You are a banking center, and yet Jesus counsels them to, to buy gold tried in the fire. They had an eye clinic, yet Jesus tells them to anoint their eyes with eye salve. They prided themselves in their black clothes, and yet they were told to put on the white garments of Christ. So Jesus is saying to them, what you really need is not more money, but a faith that's tried by fire, by the challenges that, it mean, that the brain come about by following Jesus. The eye solve represents this spiritual discernment. He's saying you need spiritual eye solve so that you can see for the first time because you are blind. They prided themselves in their black clothing. And Jesus is saying you need to put on my righteousness, which is the image of what the white robes look like. I always felt bad for the rich young ruler. You didn't, I mean, I don't know if you guys remember that story from the Gospels. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he expresses the ways in which he's been obedient. And Jesus says, okay, well, you have one more thing to do. Uh, you're rich, so sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, come follow me. I just thought that was, that's tough. <laughs> I hope Jesus doesn't give me that test, right? Like, I mean, let's be honest. Like, you read that and you're like, that's, that's pretty radical, Jesus. thought it was a little bit cruel even. But I think what Jesus was getting at was the heart of what he knew would be a crossroads for this man. Will you trust me more than the comfort, reliability of money? 
Are you willing to love me and sacrifice for me like the God of wealth demands you to do and that you currently are worshiping? Now the test here for the Laodiceans, Jesus does not say sell all your possessions. He doesn't say give up your wealth. He just says that you don't realize that while you have all these material possessions, you are missing the most important things. And so he gives this appeal. And this is my favorite part of the whole passage. I want you to really listen if you haven't been listening so far. Okay? Because I know some of you aren't listening. Some of you are. This is awesome. And this is is beautiful. Verse 19 and 20. Jesus says this. Those whom I love. I'm going to stop there. Those whom I love. I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. There's two things that I want to highlight from that passage just like that I think are so important for us. The first thing is that it is entirely possible to disagree with somebody, to call someone out, to rebuke someone in love, and that is a loving act. Do we believe that? My kids are rascals, right? Just like every other kid was. Just, I told you all my, I'll tell you more of my stories as time goes. And it's so hard to convince them that when they're being selfish or being prideful or they're uh, just being a complete jerk to their sibling or their parents, that that's not Jesus' way. And I'm going to tell them that it's not the way of Jesus so that... They can know the goodness of God and follow the one true God in all of the ways that that are good. It's the best way to live. And I'm doing it because I love them. And so it is entirely possible to call someone out, to even use the language, rebuke somebody about the way that they're living or what they're doing and do that in a loving way. The second thing is, and this is even more important, is the Laodiceans are the the church that's probably following God the least. There's no remnant here. There's no small group of people that are still following Jesus. And yet Jesus declares to them in the midst of their incredible sin and disloyalty and selfishness and pride and arrogance to believe that they don't need God for anything. What does Jesus say to them? Those I love... He loves them. He loves them so deeply and radically and caringly and, and beautifully that he's willing to, 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 to give this letter to John so that they would hear this and then, and then uh, respond. And the verse that follows tells exactly Jesus' posture towards you and me and the church in Laodicea and the church in America. And what he says is, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. And I'm pleading for entrance into your life. And this is what it says. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, this is what Jesus promises. I will come to him or her and I will dine with them and you will dine with me. And you will sit on my throne. I think that 
We have to understand how important it is to have table fellowship in the first century to understand how significant this is. We have people over for dinner, no big deal, right? People come over to our house, eat with us, that's great. We love community, all those things. But what Jesus is saying is that if you let me into your house, I will have fellowship with you. Fellowship results as they share a meal. And this imagery of dining stems from the Near Eastern practice of table fellowship. And this is really important. Listen to this. To share a meal in the ancient world was to share a life. So what Jesus is saying to them is that I want to share my life with you. So when people were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. Do you see that? Jesus was opening a way by sitting at a table with them to say, I want to have reconciliation. I want to have this newness of life, a shared life together. I want to dine with you. I want to, to know you. I want you to follow me. And so there were all sorts of boundaries because this was what they believed around table fellowship. And Jesus, if you notice in his life, wipes them all out. What does he say? He eats with sinners, right? So the refrain was, he eats with sinners. Jesus is opening up table fellowship. He's cutting down the boundaries. He's saying, your sin will not keep you from me if you invite me and I stand at the door and knock. Jesus broke all of these boundaries of sharing meals in order to tell the religious establishment that God's kingdom, all were welcome on the grounds not of acceptability, but on the response to God's call. Jesus was a friend of sinners, and Jesus is saying to this church of Laodicea, you are poor You're wealthy, you're the richest people I know, but you're poor and naked and blind. And you're missing the most important aspect of life. And I'm standing at the door knocking, will you welcome me in? Because there we can find fellowship and reconciliation and shared life together. Do you see that? That's the result, number one. The second result is the promise that we will rule and reign with Christ. Verse 21. Because Christ is, is the victor. There's this narrative all throughout Scripture. We, uh, one theory of atonement that I think is really important, there's, there's a number of them that I think play a part into what's happening at the cross, but one is this idea of Christus victor. It's this idea that, that there's evil and darkness and Satan in the world. And that is in that, that, that the ruler of the world is Satan and that there's a controlling narrative of evil in the world. And what Christ does on the cross is he defeats Satan. He bounds the strong man, as it says in the scripture. And so many people have called this idea of Christ defeating Satan and defeating death as Christ victorious, Christus victor. And what's fascinating is in the, um, the I guess it would be the third century, uh, Christians were a small minority for a long period of time and they were gaining traction in the Roman Empire. And at one point, the kingdom of God had been, had been growing and multiplying and expanding that, that the Roman Empire, Emperor declared Christianity to be the nation's religion. Now that caused all sorts of problems. That's not what I'm talking about today. 
But it had grown and expanded and had been so compelling and captivating to so many people that the Roman emperor, think about that. Think about how the Roman emperor is pictured in the New Testament and how that changed in just a couple hundred years, had embraced Christianity because it was so compelling and so good and so significant, had drawn so many people into faith. And so many of the early Christians in the third century would actually wear a necklace. And you know what they would say? Christus Victor. Christ the Victor. And they believed that Christ was having victory over the dominion of darkness and it was happening in real life right then and right now. And sometimes it may not seem that way. Many times it may feel like Christ is not winning at all. That whatever empire is ruling and reigning is winning. But what Christ is trying to point to us, what Jesus is trying to say here, is in the end, I win. In the end, God wins. And the result of trusting in Jesus, of of inviting Jesus in, is going to be costly right now. But in the end, you will win. And in the end, you will rule and you will reign with me. We often think of it just us going and worshiping God all day long in the new heavens and the new earth. But what is promised over and over again in Revelation is that we're going to rule and reign with Christ, with God. Isn't that crazy? Like, what does that even look like? I don't know, but it sounds cool. I've always wanted to rule and reign in some way, you know. Just kidding. But that's the promise. That we will have fellowship, that we will have life with Christ, and that we will rule and reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. 